Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we don't just want the intellectual word. We don't study the Word of God like it's a history book, even though there's an element of that. But honestly, we are looking for the living Word. We are looking for divine revelation, for God to speak His truth into our lives in such a way that it's a eureka. It's like the lights come on and, wow, I understand this now. And so this is the whole intent that we want the Spirit to speak to us. Now, as we come to uh, Luke chapter 19, this morning. Jesus is here on his final approach to Jerusalem, which really has been his destiny. We've been following him on this path since July in our study of the, the book of Luke. And here he's coming. This is, this is bringing him to the end of his life and uh, to, to where the, the point where he will become the sacrificial lamb of God who will die for the sins of the world, going there to become king. Now, not going there to become king, I'm sorry. The disciples kept thinking that he's going there to become king, even though Jesus has emphasized three times, no, I'm going there to die. They just don't understand it because as we've seen in the scripture, it's been blocked from them. Uh, Maybe God is trying to protect the disciples. Uh, Maybe God is trying to protect Jesus' mission. We don't know. But what should be an encouragement to all of us is this. None of us has all the revelation. And we are all on a journey so that as we read God's word and as we ask God to speak into our lives, we may have read something a hundred times and all of a sudden it jumps off the page as a new and living word. And this is really what we're after is for God to speak into our lives through his word. His word plus the Holy Spirit is enough. So let's just prepare our hearts and make sure we're ready to hear from the Lord this morning and from his word. Consider where you are this morning. Are you carrying a burden for somebody or a situation in our world? Is there a situation between you and God that needs to be resolved or another person? God cares about these things too. He may want you to go act on them. Take some action. But you need just to give those things to the Lord right now because they may get in the way of Him speaking. Are you prepared to receive from the Lord this morning or are you skeptical this morning? You've got to prepare your soil. Holy Spirit, speak and teach us now. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 11. So while they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So just to catch everybody up, they've been listening to Jesus talking to Zacchaeus, the worst of sinners, telling this worst of sinner that salvation has come into his house because the Son of of God Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is Jesus' mission. He's after the worst of sinners. 
He's after people like Zacchaeus. This is why he came. But because they're now close to Jerusalem and the people can't get it out of their heads that, that the kingdom of God is going to come the moment Jesus sets foot in Jerusalem and that Jesus is going to defeat the Roman Empire and set the Hebrews uh, free from their Roman oppression, Jesus has to emphasize, and He does this with this parable because there's a couple of things He wants to emphasize. He wants to emphasize that there's going to be delay in the coming of the kingdom. And in the meantime, God will entrust His people, His church, with certain treasures that He expects them to use and to multiply for His glory. So I want us to get the picture of the full parable. I'm going to read through the entire parable, then I want to come back and break it down. So let's, let's get the full picture of what's happening here. This is Jesus' teaching. Verse 12. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned uh, the word home is not in the original language. It just says he returned. Okay? That's the NIV getting it wrong again. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy or faithful in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put your money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said. He already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. All right, let's break this down. This man of noble birth going to a distant country to have himself appointed king is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's an analogy, so every analogy breaks down at some point, but getting the basic idea of what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus came the first time as a humble servant to lay his life down for the sins of the world. But he is coming again to reign as king. In verse 13, before he leaves, I want you to notice that he entrusts his servants. 
That's the Greek word doulos. Very important. Notice that word servant. These are followers. These are the ones that he entrusts the treasures to. It's a very specific group of people and he expects them to be fruitful with that which he's entrusted into their care. Now, you'll recognize that this sounds very similar to another parable that we get over in Matthew 25. Only here we see some very specific differences. In this parable, Jesus is intentional in tying this teaching to the coming of the kingdom and what to do until the kingdom comes. Also, in this parable, Jesus entrusts them with a very small sum of money. If you go over to Matthew 25, you'll find that He's giving them as little as 15 years wages and as much as 75 years wages. These are huge sums of money that He's entrusted them with. In Matthew 25, He's giving them different amounts, okay? And trusting them to be trustworthy with what is given. In today's parable, a mina that is given is only worth about three months' wages. So the emphasis here isn't that the master is setting these guys up to be rich, but this is a test to see if they will be trustworthy with that which is put into their care. Can I trust them to manage it well? So what were they do to do with it? Put it to work. That's the whole idea. Now, this idea of God wanting us to show increase has been a principle with Him since creation and it will be a principle in all eternity. If you have this image of, of, of nothing going on in heaven but people sitting around playing harps, that's a lie. You will be fruitful in heaven. You will pre- be productive and you will enjoy your work. Look at the creation account. God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, He says, Be fruitful and multiply. Okay? That's who God is, and God wants us to live in His image. So we are created to be productive, and we see this here. So the application here, we must recognize that we live in this period of time between Christ's departure, His being appointed king, and His return. This applies directly to us. He didn't entrust us with certain things so we could sit on them. He entrusted us with certain things so that we could be fruitful with them. Okay? Now, many love to take this teaching and tell you that these minas represent three things. They love to tell you that these minas represent what you do with your time, what you do with your talent, and what you do with your treasure. And consequently, this will be used in church as a tool to manipulate people to do more for the local church. Okay? Now, mind you, I, I, I do believe that these minas represent time, talent, and treasure to some degree, but I'm afraid that something more significant gets left off with the emphasis of this. Sure, these things are to be used, but not just for the building up of your own church so that you can say, look at our church. This is about kingdom business. It's not about our church against that church. It's about the kingdom of God. Very, very important, okay? 
Also, in this emphasis, this teaching that these minas represent time, talent, and treasure, there's only one emphasis usually given on the treasure, and that has to do with your tithe. But it's so much more than that. Tithe just becomes another form of legalism that we can jam down people's throats and say, you're going to give account to God if you're not investing you know, properly. Now, you know, those who can worship with the tithe, glory to God. I mean, our church is blessed, you know, and provided for in a mighty way. But it tends to leave out the more significant primary things. And let me tell you what some of those are. What are we doing with the treasure of the Word of God? What are we doing with the treasure of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are we doing with our personal testimonies of the transforming work of God in our lives? What are we doing? Am I getting too intense? Mia, you said I'm getting too intense. Okay. Wow. Breathe, Michael, breathe. The primary things of what are we doing with our personal spiritual gifts? Realizing that the body will never be complete until every member is doing its part. What are we doing with the person and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? These are the things that are included in this Mina and Jesus' teaching to take those things and occupy until He comes. So what we're not to do is to back away and say, well, the Lord's coming soon, so I might as well sit in this chair and take it easy until He comes. To hell with everybody else. Yeah, that's right. Or how about this? How about, you know, He's coming, somebody's given a date, so let's go sell everything that we have because we don't need it anyway. Or how about this? Let's go take all of our credit cards and go max them out and have a really good time because no one's going to collect from me anyway since the Lord's going to return. Huh? This isn't what this is talking about at all. We are to live as though the Lord could come at, at any moment, yes, but we're not to focus on some specific date as though we have it all figured out. We are not to hold so tightly to the stuff of this world that we can't let it go in a moment upon Christ's return. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in the same position as Lot's wife, who, while Sodom's being destroyed and she's supposed to be keeping her eyes on Jesus, she's looking back and thinking about what she's left behind. It doesn't matter in the kingdom. Be ready to leave it and be ready to run, but also invest it as though you're managing it for the Lord Himself because this is what He wants you to do. Verse 14. But His subjects. Okay, we've seen the word servants, right? Doulos. But now this is a different group of people. This is subjects. These are polites. These are like uh, political constituents. These are like townsmen. Totally different group of people. Notice them. These people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be king. Now, most Bible teachers love to uh, point to the story of, uh, of Herod Archelaus at this point and tie it to the fact that when his father, Herod the Great, died, he entrusted his kingdom to three of his sons, Herod Archelaus, 
inherited Judea, which is the area we're in right now. It's an amazing association because Herod Archelaus had to go see Augustus Caesar in Rome in order to claim his inheritance and be appointed king. But a Jewish delegation who hated Archelaus went with him and ahead of him and protested, we don't want this man to be king. He was vicious. He was more vicious than his his father, Herod the Great, and they didn't want him. He ended up only uh, having his inheritance for 10 years before he was killed by the Romans at the Jews' request. But he was never appointed king. He only received his inheritance. And of course, he became a key player in the Christmas story, if you recall, because it was because of him that uh, Joseph and Mary had to flee to Galilee. And this is why the prophecies were fulfilled that Jesus was a Nazarene. So it's an interesting similarity that teachers want to say Jesus pulled this parable out of actual history that's happening right at that time. And it's just worth pointing out. But here's, here's the deal. It was these subjects, these polites, who hated this man. This is representing Jesus that they're hating. Okay, The, the, the subjects hated Jesus, but the servants, the doulos, his followers, loved him. The polites didn't want him to be king. They were his enemies, but the doulos, his servants, are subject to him because they see value in his rulership. Now, if you recall, on the night when Jesus was handed over to be arrested, Pontius Pilate said to the Jews this. He said, here is your king. And what did they say? Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. To which Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And their response was, we have no king but Caesar. So these people hated Jesus. They did not want Jesus to be king. And this brings us to an application that goes like this. There's only two choices. Either you surrender to Jesus or you find yourself in opposition to Jesus. Either Jesus is your greatest friend that ever lived, or Jesus is your greatest enemy. Okay, There's no patronizing Jesus. Very, very important. Listen, we have a sin problem. God has provided a provision to take care of the sin problem. If we reject the provision, what is there left for us? Okay, So this is the basis of some of the, the justice that we see happening in the Scripture. Verse 15. And this is the story of Jesus. He was made king. (laughs) Every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king. Okay? Whether you want him to be or not, he is king. He was made king, however, and returned. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. So I just really want to emphasize that a mina is a small matter. It's only three months wages. And this tells us that this master, this king, is not nearly as concerned with how much is given as he's concerned about are we trustworthy with what is given. And he's not nearly as concerned about how much increase is accomplished with what's given. He just wants to know, was there increase? Okay? And then also notice that the king's reward goes from something very small to something very significant. Three months' wages traded for ten 
cities. You remember back in Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. That's what we're seeing happening right here. So just pause for an application for a moment. Wow. I feel like I'm battling right here and I can't figure out why. Let's just take a moment. Father God, I don't know what's happening this morning, but you do. And whatever needs to happen to break through us, Lord, break through. Break through, Lord. Please break through. May this not be about me. May this be about you. May it not be about what Michael Descoli has to say, but may it be about the Paracletos, the Holy Spirit, teaching us your truth. Defeat the devil, break down the barriers, the dividing wall, and let your word go forth with power. Thank you, Jesus. just want to wait. Lord, we worship you, Lord, and give you praise. Thank you, Lord. Okay, application here. Do you sometimes feel as though what has been entrusted to you, the treasures that have been entrusted to you are very small compared to what you see others have? And if this is the case, then this is a matter of, of ingratitude. And if you're not careful, what you'll find yourself doing is thinking that your gifts and the things that God has entrusted with you are too small for Him to ever use. And you'll end up sitting on them. God wants you to be grateful for whatever He's given to you. And He wants you to increase it for the glory of His kingdom. I don't say this as a scolding parent. This is about assessment here. This is about us standing before God and saying, God, I want to be everything You want me to be. Help me to get there. Okay, that's what this is about. Okay, this is not about me standing over you looking down as some kind of hammering preacher saying, I'm better than you. Live up to who I am. This is about you and me on the same journey. Okay, very, very important. So we pick it up now, verse 18. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of, of five cities. So notice that, uh, that they're rewarded according to the increase that they show. This is God's prerogative. We don't argue with Him, but the amazing thing here is that both are rewarded for being faithful to what they receive. Stop looking at amounts and just recognize God wants us to show increase, which is about fulfilling what He created us to do. Okay, Not sitting on what we have, but multiplying. Well, not even multiplying, because you'll see that in the next uh, few sections here. Verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Look at folks. Look at this. Do you see the motivator here of this guy that's stashing away his gift? It's fear. Do you see that? It's fear that's going on. This is not a healthy fear that's built off reverence and respect. This is a fear that shows that he does not know this king personally. He doesn't have a relationship with this king. Listen, fear is a powerful motivator, but it isn't the most powerful motivator. 
Fear is a powerful motivator, but that doesn't make it a good motivator, nor does it make it the right motivator. Yet religion loves to capitalize on fear. I, I was told as a young man desiring to go into ministry, put the fear of God in them. And, and I'll hear Dad say, I'm going to give him some of the fear of God. And, and what God wants us to see here is that the most powerful and only truly good motivator is love. Did you hear that? Yes. In fact, I want us to see 1 John 4 because it says it so beautifully. Look at this. God is love. Isn't that enough? You want a definition of God? This is agape. This isn't phileo or eros, even though those are all his ideas too. This is, I love you because I love you because I love you and nothing you will ever do will ever change that. It's unconditional love. And that's who God is. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Are you afraid of the day of judgment? Look what the Scripture says. God wants you to have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love. God drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And I show you that because fear is proof that this guy is not in proper relationship with the king. If he truly knew the king, he wouldn't be responding out of fear. He would be responding out of full confidence. C.S. Lewis said, God is not safe, but he is good. And what he's doing here is referring to the fact that God would rather we wisely risk what he's entrusted to us knowing that He cares and loves us than for us to sit on what He's entrusted to us out of fear that He might judge us. Hmm. This guy is idolizing what's been given to him as though it's his God. It's his precious. Look at this proverb. This is from the message. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. The one who blesses others is abundantly blessed. Those who help others are helped. You see what's going on here? It's about acting out of love and through love and in love to multiply into the lives of others that which God has entrusted into our care. And God has entrusted us. It may seem like a small thing, but He wants us to increase it. So the application here is this. And this is out of the love of a pastor and out of years of youth ministry of trying to manipulate kids. <laughs> My desire here is not to get you to a place that you determine you're going to be fruitful for God. But the intent of the Word, and that's really what matters and what the Lord wants to say, is for us to assess, am I bearing fruit of eternal significance? And if not, I must be living in fear. Therefore, I must not know my Heavenly Father. And so the one action, get to know your Father and you'll be motivated. 
oh, I, this week I, I had to go out of town after church last Sunday because I had to interview 10 candidates who want to be ordained. There is nothing better in my life, I don't think, well, leading people to Christ, because that makes the angels dance, but one of my greatest pleasures is meeting these people who are called into ministry. And there is something going on up at North Platte that I, the Spirit of God is all over this church. It is just amazing. And you look at this pastor and say, God's blessing him? And hallelujah, God's blessing Ron. And these guys called in the ministry. It's, it's just incredible. So one of these guys, delivered from drugs, delivered from alcohol, totally in love with Jesus, works a full-time job, you know, busy man, but he's going into two prisons sharing Christ with, with people in, in prison. One he has to drive three hours to get to. And so in the interview, I just asked him, I said, what is your greatest joy in ministry? And I was looking for a story, you know, of, of something that happened. And his response was this. My greatest joy in ministry is him. <laughs> and he said it with all sincerity. And I was like, this guy gets it. Yes. And, and, and the whole purpose here, all eyes on Jesus. This, this church isn't about kicking you guys where you need to be kicked to get you moving. This is about getting our eyes on Jesus so that he can be glorified because we're motivated by his great love. Well, let's go on. Verse 22. His master, and okay, now, by teaching the Bible uh, verse by verse, we can't skip anything, okay? So uh, the nice thing about doing topical messages and teachings is you don't have to go into this territory, okay? So uh, we're just being faithful to the word here, right? Trying to, God speak to us. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? See that word, deposit? Does deposit, do your deposits multiply your money right now? <laughs> Not hardly, right? Maybe add a little bit? Yeah. That, that, see the emphasis here? On deposit so that when I come back, I can collect it with just interest, right? So he's faulting the servant for not implementing the simplest and most conservative modes of, of showing increase. Doesn't this show us that it's not about the amount? It's just about the faithfulness? It's not about ten times or five times. It's about three percent or two percent or one percent something being done. And again, the problem is worshiping the gift rather than the giver of the gift. Precious. I must guard this because this is my security. Verse 24. So then he said to those standing by this king, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. That too, everyone who has more will be given. But as far as the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Can I just say right here that left to ourselves, this is who we are. We are unproductive in eternal things. We're really productive in temporary things and we tend to hide away our stuff because it's our security. huh? And it's only as we place what God has given us into His hands, believing that He is able and sufficient, that we're able to do anything b beyond that. That's what this is, this is really about. 
So these, this is a picture of those who appear to be Christ followers, but because they couldn't follow through on what the one they said they loved wanted them to do, it showed they really didn't love him, and therefore they were just as much enemies as the other guys. Did you hear what I just said? It, this is revealing the state of their heart based on their inability to act. James 3.14 puts it clearly when it says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? And what I really find interesting here and fascinating is, didn't they all get the same amount? Didn't they, didn't they all get a mina? Ten guys? Ten minas? And therefore, how could a guy who's been given the same amount have less unless it's from his own perspective that he has less? Huh? That he's looking around at everybody else so that he can't give thanks for that which has been entrusted into his care and therefore he's not possessing what was given to him but what was given to him is possessing him. Martin Luther said, I have held many things in my hands and have lost them all. But whatever I place in God's hands, that I still possess. Are you still putting what God has entrusted into your care on the shelf? Are you bemoaning what you don't have instead of giving thanks for what you do have? God wants you to understand that what He's entrusted into your care is to allow you to show your trust in Him and your faithfulness, which, faithfulness which, 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 with what is to be given to you because if you can't be faithful with the little things He's given to you today, you will not be able to be trusted with things in eternity. You know, if the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now, honestly, I have to say that I have known people, rich people who have achieved great inheritances and they act like they've done something to, to earn those inheritances. And that's why I'm really praying about when we're going to study the book of Ecclesiastes. Because it's such a, a valuable book. And, and these people end up with nothing because they did nothing to gain. But a truly rich person who's able to grow wealth, is always looking for opportunity and is willing to take calculated risks because the security isn't in his stuff. At the same time, others become trapped by what they have and they live their lives as like victims looking for something to fall out of the sky or by the government increasing taxation or by protests on Wall Street as though the government is their security and not the Lord God. Investing what God has given to you takes faith. It takes the capacity to know where everything comes from. And the Lord has given graciously. Therefore, I can move and I can act with liberty because my God is still on the throne. Wow. Is there anything good in that at all? Verse 27. But those enemies of mine Oh, let me back up and just give you John 15, 5, because this is a great reference. This is everything we're talking about today. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So do you see the connection here we're trying to make as we look at this word, that it all fits together, that 
The goal, if you want to be fruitful, is to get to know Him, to stay connected to Him. Because then, okay, listen, if you could determine to bear fruit and then you go and do it, who gets the glory? Right? But if you learn to abide in Him and then you see fruit, then who gets the glory? And that's why we sing songs like here about laying down our crowns because we recognize that we're not building our personal kingdoms here. This is about the glory and the kingdom of God. Okay, this is what it's really about. Now verse 27. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So again, this is really what we all deserve. The wage of sin is, is death. But by God's great kindness, He has made a way to life for all of us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Either we will accept the gift of His Son or we will reject the gift, gift of His Son. But what we all need to hear this morning is you're not God's enemy when you fail. Did you hear what I said? You are not God's enemy when you fail. Did you hear what I said? You are not God's enemy when you fail. But you are God's enemy when you determine that you're going to choose to go your own path over His. And truly, repentance is saying, I'm tired of doing life my way. I see where it gets me. I want to surrender and learn to do life God's way. Out of that, you build fruit, but it's a result of proper connectedness. Are we doulos or are we politos? Are we God's servants or are we just His constituents? Are we His friends or are we His enemies? These enemies of God, you could say, how could God be so cruel? Here's the deal, folks. The wage of sin is death. These enemies blatantly rejected the king. It was their choice. God doesn't send anybody to hell, but we choose to go to hell because we reject the King of Heaven. They blatantly rejected their Master's will, refusing to surrender to it. They didn't trust their Master's intentions, and they only cared about themselves. They did not care about the Kingdom. And like the King in the story, God has entrusted you and me with certain things. And the question is, are we surrendered to Him? Are we surrendered to His will? Do we trust His intentions? Do we put His kingdom interests ahead of our own? Now, what's fascinating to me is there were ten servants and there were ten minas given. And we only get the story of three. And that's because the seven is the number of completion and it's the number of the church. And it's the number that says, your story is yet to be told. Will you surrender to Him and allow Him to bear fruit through you? As much as I can tell, I've been faithful to the Word of God. Would you take a moment between you and God and just consider these things? Why He brought you here? What He wants you to know? And what He would have you do in response?